When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. Welcome back to the Fenway Rundown Podcast. Chris Cotillo here, along with Sean McAdam. We usually do not record on Mondays, but we didn't want to wait. After a very eventful, a very interesting winter weekend out in Springfield, I was there on Friday night, Sean was there on Saturday. Uh, usually the appetizer comes before the main course, Sean, but in this case, the Friday night uh, was, for a different reason than last year, the eventful piece of it. We're going to cover all that and more, of course, over the weekend. We had everybody updated on our Insider Text program. Good time to join that with spring training right around the corner. Absolutely. It was a busy weekend for that. We were able to give updates uh, as soon as we heard them. So if you are part of our Insider Text subscriber club, you knew before anybody else. And that's a good reminder that it's an easy join to be part of that group. Just text the word join to 617-751-6257. Click the link to subscribe. It comes with a 14-day trial period and then a $4.99 charge per month. An opportunity to stay current on all Red Sox news, to exchange ideas and questions and get answers from all three of us here, myself, Chris, and Chris Smith. So join us today. Let's get right into it. I think there's a billion things to get to. Uh, to me, none of the stuff that was said on Friday night came as a massive surprise based on the reporting that we've done, the things we've heard. Um, I have my takes. I know you will, but just to, you know, kind of run it down for people, no pun intended, Sam Kennedy, Tom Warner, Craig Breslow, and Alex Cora talked on Friday night, a long list of players talked on Saturday. We'll touch on that briefly a a lot later. Um, Sam and Tom went first and it was a long 18 minute kind of contentious media briefing the first time that Sam and Tom had been available in any setting like that since Craig Breslow was hired. Tom Warner, as he said to you earlier in the week uh, on the phone, you know, his full throttle comment was not the most artful. There was a lot of discussion of the direction of the franchise, but I think the big piece of news there is what we've been saying all along through what we've thought about what the Red Sox have been doing and telling teams and agents the payroll is going to be lower in 24 than it was in 23 that's significant because 225 million is not 
particularly close to the luxury tax threshold. And so we think the, the payroll will be somewhere between 200 and 225 million. And based on the rhetoric and based on what they've done, I think we both think it'll be closer to two or 210 than 225, but we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Um, and then Sam Kennedy and Tom Warner kind of getting fired up about this perception that ownership doesn't care. We heard the comments from Sam on WEEI saying, you're a liar if you say the Red Sox don't care. A lot to unpack here. I think, you know, the event, the actual welcome event, which we've talked about a lot on the show here, is totally secondary. The boos weren't that loud. I was there. There weren't that many people going crazy. Like, you can't boo Craig Breslow, really. He hasn't done anything yet. Now we all know his hands are tied. To me, the, the number one headline here is Sam and Tom on Friday night and everything they said. I thought it was a very, very, very interesting 17 minutes, and there's a lot to cover from it. Yeah, there sure is. And, you know, let's start with the overarching theme that what they further explained and got into in some detail Friday night with you and some others in Springfield was really a repudiation of the comments they made when Craig Breslow was introduced. We heard Craig Breslow and, say and- and before that, and for like months, you know, like I, not that you don't know this, but people seem to think that it was just that one day, that one full throttle thing. L- listen to Sam Kennedy the day they fired Bloom. Right. Uh, there were multiple instances where they signaled that they were going to be very aggressive spenders uh, this winter. And as it turned out, that has, of course, not been the case. They have signed one free agent of consequence. That's Lucas Giolito. They've signed a couple of sort of journeyman 4A uh, reliever and and Cooper Criswell. Uh, They made two trades, uh, Verdugo for some future pitching and some minor league prospects for Tyler O'Neill. It has not been the dramatic upgrade or roster turnover that had been promised and alluded to for much of the winter. And worse, as you sort of referenced, Chris, was a sort of haughty, like, well, what do you mean we we haven't kept our word? And denying that there was a disconnect between the messaging they had been presenting since mid-September when Bloom was dismissed through the Craig Breslow hiring and announcement and whatever little availability there was for upper management and ownership in small pockets throughout the winter. It is a, I don't know if it's a 180 degree reversal, but it is certainly a significant turn of philosophy than what had been broadcast and promised for much of the winter. I think the question is, is it a significant turn in philosophy or is it a significant turn of messaging? You yeah, know, because well, what it, you know, and that's nothing that we'll really probably ever be able to know, but the facts are the facts here. You say full throttle. You say it's time to make moves. We didn't think Heim was the guy to make those big moves or to make the bold stand. And then Craig Breslow comes in. Was it that Craig Breslow looked at this team and in an internal audit thought, hey, we're not close. We need to pump the brakes and keep building. Or was it, and this continues, I think, to be a a theory that we both share, John Henry and the powers that be setting a number that was way lower than other people in the organization thought for the budget. You know, Zach Scott came on here and said, it's a moving target and that type of thing. Breslow said they've been open to different things. I mean, it just, to me, there's, there's only a limited amount of explanations for why this could be the case. And that one makes the most sense. Yeah. And you know, you had reported that 
that Breslow and other members of the Red Sox front office were conveying to agents and other teams that there was kind of a binary choice here that to add money, they first had to get rid of it. To me, you're not saying that thing to agents, to others in the industry, unless there is a dictum, there is a mandate about you can't for now go over this number. Maybe uh, if it's July and we're in the race, we will green light additional spending uh, because they're in the, the playoff race. But it, it certainly seems as if the aim is to begin the season with a payroll in the low 200 million figure. And that is a substantial reduction and drop off, not only from the first CBT threshold that you referenced at 237, but even matching last year's figure of 225. Uh, it does not seem, barring some late change of heart or a reversal of approach here that they're going to come anywhere near that before the start of the season. Now we think they could still go out and sign a mid-level free agent, maybe even a back-end free agent, whether that's Mike Clevenger, whether that's James Paxton, whether that's uh, Hyunjun Ru. Uh, you know, there are Lorenzen. a handful of, pardon me? Lorenzen, another guy. Right, right. There are, you know, a handful of guys that would improve the back end depth, but would not uh, qualify as a real impact in the top half of the rotation. But even someone like that is not going to, uh, you know, cost them 22, 23 million that would get them up to 225. So maybe they're at 210, 215, but um, it, it certainly seems like they are constrained and have been constrained by an internal number that has been provided that they obviously don't want to share. Uh, I, I find no other reason for members of baseball ops to be talking to agents and other teams and saying that it was first necessary for them to clear payroll, whether it be Yoshida, whether it be Jansen or somebody else before they could take on a significant contract. It's hard to look at that and come away with anything other than they have a pretty hard and fast budget that sits close to $200 million. And Peter Gammons this weekend with an interesting tweet at Winter Weekend. The Red Sox say they will stay the course. The Globe story from Gammons for weeks. Execs from other teams talking to the Red Sox claim they have to cut payroll, that Breslow doesn't have the payroll he thought he would, that FSG suffered offseason losses. In time, the true story, and Sam Kennedy was on this Friday, will be told in Breslow's creativity we'll have time to reconstruct what needs to be done. But be realistic. Starting pitching comes in fits and starts. There's no star attraction that requires 705 Nesson viewing. I mean, this is starting to be not just a conspiracy theory, but kind of a very clear reality for, for the Red Sox. And a question I asked Tom Warner as a follow-up was, when you say full throttle, and even if you walk it back and say pulling all the levers, isn't one of those levers full spending? And he had that ready-made answer. They don't hand out a trophy to whoever spends the most. And that can be true, and it is. We've seen the Padres, the Mets, the Yankees. Those teams didn't make the postseason last year. Everybody's aware of that whole thing. But traditionally, teams that spend do win. Look at the 2018 Red Sox, the Rangers last year. The list goes on and on and on. Of course, it's not exactly a correlation, but there is a long track record of 
if you pay the most for your players and you have the most talent, then you are going to do well. Right. And I also think it's worth noting here, Chris, that while Tom brought up the fact that the top three payrolls all missed out on qualifying for the postseason in 2023, that much is undeniable. The Padres, Mets, and Yankees uh, were the top three spenders. All three of them, uh, two of them finished just over 500. I think the Padres and Yankees were both 82 and 80. I think the Mets ended up with a losing record. But it's important to note that all three of those teams had had pretty good October runs the year before and were looking to spend to get to that next level. The Padres wanted to, uh, and the Mets both knew they had to outduel the Dodgers to win the National League pennant. The Yankees knew they had to deal with a an improving Orioles team, a Blue Jays team that had made the postseason, uh, a, a Tampa team that often is better than people think they're going to be. So they were all trying to improve on already playoff caliber teams. I think what what angers Red Sox fans so much about the news that has trickled out here in the last week when it comes to ownership and their commitment to spending is that there, there's kind of a black and white all or nothing. Well, we're not good enough to be a pennant contender, so we're what good is it to spend additional money? When the fact of the matter is that when you have finished last two years in a row, as these Red Sox have, when you have finished last three times in the last four years, as this Red Sox team has, doesn't it make sense to make incremental gains to get you into that Arizona Diamondbacks category where an 84 or an 85 win team sneaks into the playoffs as a wild card, gets hot, has its pitching in order, and has a deep October run. Uh, that would have an enormous impact here in New England where ownership is saying, you have suffered long enough, the fan base. We acknowledge that. And so we're spending money to, even if we're not ready to win a World Series, we're spending money to get to that next level. And from there, we'll take our next big leap. They are packaging as it as all or nothing. That if you can't win the World Series, you're just throwing good money after bad if you spend in that winter, when actually you could make your team a 500 team, which they haven't been three of the last four years. You could make that team a September playoff contender, which they have not been in three of the last four years. And perhaps most importantly, you could win back the goodwill and affection of the fan base that at least recognizes you are taking the necessary steps forward. You may not be all in. You may not be full throttle yet. Okay, but people want to see some commitment to pulling this team out of the basement, and there hasn't been one. And you asked Craig Breslow that question when we had him Thursday, too. Isn't there a case to be made that, you know, get in and look at what the Diamondbacks did? You don't have to look that far across the country to see an example of that. You know, look, think back to the last day of the regular season in Washington, D.C. in 2021. The Red Sox had to scrape their way into the playoffs with three straight wins in D.C. and ended up, you know, looking like they were going to the World Series for the middle part of that ALCS against the Astros. Obviously, things fell apart and they didn't, but 
that's a deep run. You know, they dispatched a good Rays team and had an early lead on the Astros and beat the Yankees like, in the wild card. Right. I mean, this is this is a, a just an example right there. Um, and they've forgotten, I guess, about that possibility based on the points you're making. So that's payroll. Payroll is going to be down. It's not a surprise. Alex Beer had a good piece a few weeks ago now about how historically they haven't lowered payroll significantly two years in a row. They've gone down, but then they've come back up. So this is a departure from the past, and and that I think is is very very clear. Um, the idea of the disconnect between San, uh, between Tom and between John, something you brought up last week when we were talking, something Tom completely dismissed. I mean, that falls under the what else is he possibly going to say category. We're in lockstep. He can't say, yeah, screw John. He set the budget way too low. Um, and the same with Sam. He's not going to throw his boss under the bus. Right. And they're, so they're going to pre- they're going to present a united front as they right. always have. There were times, certainly, when Larry Lucchino was there. And there were, I think, some pretty significant philosophical differences. Uh, I think Larry had the kind of cachet and personality to make the case to John and or Tom that things needed to change and sometimes got his way and sometimes didn't. But it seems as though there isn't anybody right now who is willing to uh, put a stick in the ground and kind of duel it out with John Henry on philosophy when it comes to spending. Tom Warner's personality, I don't think lends well to that. Uh, Tom is more of a, uh, a, you know, collegial guy from his time in television, working with others. He's not a confrontational my way or the highway type. He never, he, he never been to Roseanne either, I bet. Probably not. No. Uh, and I would say the same of Sam Kennedy, that he regards himself as uh, the spokesperson and the primary face uh, uh, of the franchise in terms of representing ownership. And he's not about to uh, certainly publicly act in any way that is disloyal and perhaps not even behind closed doors, even as I've been told that he recognizes this approach is bad for business, that he knows when it comes to putting tickets on sale, and I know you want to say something about that in a minute, Mm -hmm. when it comes to putting tickets on sale, when it comes to renewing marketing and advertising partnerships with the team, either for Nesson or signage at the ballpark, that it is obviously an easier job to do and to get people on board when you have a team that the general public is excited about. If you could find the absolute diametrically opposed uh, word for excited about when it comes to how baseball fans in New England feel about the 2024 Red Sox, that's where we are. People are disillusioned, disgusted, frustrated, you a lot of people. Yeah, apathetic. Um, I don't. I don't think we've gotten to the so bad I don't care anymore. But when you get to that street, you have really taken a wrong turn as a franchise. Right now, it's anger, which at least indicates that people care and are at least invested in the outcomes, even if they're not happy with the approach you're taking. But when it comes to 
I don't, you know, we, we see a lot of stuff on social media, right? I'm not giving John Henry a dollar. I'm canceling Nesson. I'm not going to games. I'm not buying the overpriced hot dogs and beers. Those are all, that's tough talk for February and January and March. Ultimately, a lot of people will end up going. They'll have, I would say, at bottom, you know, 2.5 million fans at Fenway because, as they told us, they're selling the Fenway Park experience. The, you know, America's favorite, favorite ballpark, essentially a tourist trap for a lot of people coming into town and checking Fenway off with the Old North Church and the Freedom Trail. And, oh, yeah, let's buy a game and go to Fenway, uh, buy some tickets and go to Fenway. That's always going to be there. But, you know, locally, the enthusiasm has bottomed out. I can't remember. Uh, I, I think you have to go back to, uh, you know, probably the 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 early to mid nineties. I remember them well. A, yeah, to to find a time when so few people were excited about an upcoming Red Sox season. The points I want to make here, and you kind of led me in by talking about tickets. Red Sox stats. There's nobody better with. Nobody who has a better pulse on the Red the, Sox the tw- fan We base. should clarify the Twitter account, Red Sox Stats. Yes. At Red Sox Stats. Everybody knows how brilliant this person is. Uh, I would give up my seat hosting this podcast for him in a second, or her. Great tweet, November 2nd, 2023. The quote was full throttle in every possible way. On January 16th was the final deadline to renew season tickets. On January 19th, they finally came out and admitted payroll will be lower. Now, the nice people at home are going to think I'm auditioning for a weekly spot on the Pat McAfee show by buying into a conspiracy theory like this one, but I am all in on that being the case. Please do not put that sleeveless t-shirt on. I'm begging you. No, I did that once. It didn't go over well for the video clips, but this is like absolutely something I don't put past them. You know what I mean? Like the messaging, the messaging, the messaging, and now pulling back. You know, Breslow took calls, did podcasts last week. Warner took your call. They talked Friday. And you know what? They were candid and kind of, and they were accessible, which is more than we can say for most of the offseason. We appreciate that. I do think a lot of it is, oh, hey, we're here to do John's bidding and we can't throw him under the bus and he's making these decisions, so we're the human shield. All that stuff, everybody knows I have a problem with it. I'm not going to go on too long. But the season ticket thing, I think, is very legit. I think it's a great point. Um, and it's it just that that feels like a bait and switch that's almost inexcusable to me. The other thing I'll bring up is about the Fenway experience, and it's a point I want to add here. I talked to a lot of people in the organization about something I've noticed in the last few years. Fenway, for the majority of the time you covered the team, through the early 2000s, everything was a place for diehard baseball fans and your occasional tourists to go, okay? It was, I remember being, growing up, and, you know, I was eight in 2004. Tickets were impossible to come by. It was very hard. They were expensive. You could barely get tickets because it was obviously sold out all the time. And there were so many diehard fans that wanted to go. They have made a change in the last few years where you're not bringing in, you know, the father and son who have their scorebooks as much. And now it's a night out for young people, college kids, people in their 20s. We've seen the student nines, but beyond that, you know, the truly terrace and things like that, the music getting built in the ballpark. And I think back to a time long ago when I was at school in the Carolinas, 
I did a story, uh, and this will this is not pandering to you as a hockey fan, but I did a story for a class on ticket sales and the business plan for the Carolina Hurricanes. Don Waddell, uh, longtime hockey executive, called me for this story, which was really cool of him to do for a, honestly a school project. It did run on SB Nation. This is a long and winding road to the point, folks, but stick with me. The Hurricanes, obviously, throughout time, have not had the most passionate fan base. Hockey in Raleigh, North Carolina is not the number one sport in a college basketball town and a good baseball area. And they determined they needed to shift their focus from selling every seat and focus it on revenue and make sure that the people that did come, they squeezed the most amount of money from. And that, I think, is something a lot of teams have done in the five, six years since then. And the Red Sox, I think, are kind of doing the same thing where, okay, you know, we'll get college students to come in here for $9, but they're also, because they're college students, each buy five $16 beers, right? Or at the corporate level, you know, the Dell Technologies Club, the State Street Pavilion, everything's expensive in there. There's not your free buffet in some of those places that you see in other, you know, suites throughout the country. Um, It's all about kind of maximizing revenue. And I think the out-of-town thing, is a lot of people have said, is totally real from the Dodgers to the Mets to the Blue Jays to you know, the Cardinals and Brewers we've seen over the last few years, these teams are bringing in their fans in droves. And the bottom line, you know, does not reflect the anger or the apathy that we think is seeping in when it comes to ticket sales. And I think that staves off kind of that change by ownership to like panic because they don't see it. Well, yeah, because ultimately they don't care who's paying them money as right. long as someone is paying them money, whether they have a zip code of, you know, St. Louis, Missouri or Milwaukee, Wisconsin or Newton, Massachusetts. It's all the same to them. And I would point out, while I think your uh, your project about the hurricanes is instructive, that there is a big difference between trying to sell a largely northern and regional sport in North Carolina and the Red Sox appealing to fans in New England. Yeah. The Hurricanes were a transplanted franchise from Hartford. There was no hockey culture to speak of in Carolina when that franchise began. They had to explain the rules. They had to explain what overtime was like what shootouts are like what penalties there 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 was not a lot of of hockey fans in that area before the franchise moved there so they had to sell it as a night out come on you'll enjoy it maybe there'll be a fight maybe we'll win maybe there'll be some goal scoring but you'll like the experience and we'll have beer and we'll have a cannon to shoot off and all these things that they do but they were doing it to a neophyte hockey audience. Yeah. We're talking about an original American League franchise with a with a history of 125 years and a ballpark that's more than 100 years old reverting to that kind of marketing approach because the product on the field isn't interesting enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great kind of different way of looking at it. I think, you know, Again, the revenue is not taking as much of a hit as the fan disinterest would suggest, and therefore the panic button is not being pressed. You know, Sam Kennedy. One, yeah, go ahead. One, one thing that I don't understand, and I, you know, you and I have made points about 
doesn't matter who's forking the money over as long as the seats are filled. In many ways, college kids are probably spending more per person than a dad taking his son to a game. Um, but that leaves out the Nesson equation, okay? You can market Fenway as come see the oldest ballpark, come see the history, tell your kids that you saw Yaz here or you saw Fred Lynn and Jim Rice here, or that your great-grandfather saw Ted Williams here, or Babe Ruth here, or all of that. I get that. What about the other component to revenue, which is Nesson? You don't have that same luxury there. You You can't say to people, hey, Watch the game tonight because you'll be looking at the field where Ted Williams and Yaz played. That doesn't work as a TV attraction. When you want people to devote, even with the new rules, three hours to plunking themselves down on the couch or the easy chair in front of the TV every night, you better damn well have an entertaining team on the field. And while they may be able to make up for drops in attendance and interest with out-of-towners and casual fans at the ballpark, you can't do that at TV. So I've written about the fact that at their height, and even not that long ago, let's go back 10 years, it wasn't unusual for Nesson to have nightly ratings of 9 and 10 and 11. Now it's routinely 2, 3, and 4. So what is that costing them in terms of advertising revenue? You've got to believe that's a lot. And remember, the Red Sox don't own Nesson exclusively. The Bruins own a portion, but the the Red Sox own 80% of it. So there's a lot of money they're leaving on the table Mm -hmm. by not having an interesting team that's going to draw eyeballs to the TV set every night at 710. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely an unexplainable piece of it. And I think there are many. Um, the whole idea of ownership being out of touch, I think that's fair. And I think that the reason people say that is for Sam Kennedy to jump on EEI and say, you're a liar. I mean, they're, they are in every way a self-fulfilling prophecy when it comes to how could you possibly think we're not committed? Well, you're not spending and you don't speak about the team and the team hasn't been good for, you know, three out of four years, hasn't made the playoffs once since 2018. And people have, you know, villainized Henry, I think, you know, for for some fair reasons. Um, And the other thing is when you peddle something like the Fenway experience, there's just a lot of kind of out of touch narratives from them. And, you know, going back on their word, I think it was interesting for Sam to say, if you're a Red Sox fan that doesn't think we're committed, you're a liar. The ownership group is also coming off the greatest, you know, 180 degree spin cycle in franchise history so hypocritical much there um it's just the whole thing it's just it's not good business no I, i didn't go to harvard business school but i'm pretty sure they would teach you don't insult your customers who are already inclined to be angry with your product you know shaming them and insulting their intelligence or their truthfulness it is not part of a grand plan to burnish the franchise's reputation and turn people's hearts and minds around and wallets. That's not doing it. 
frankly, I, I was kind of shocked that Sam went that far. Uh, you and I have had our differences with him, but he's clearly an intelligent guy who has gotten to that point because he is well-spoken mm-hmm. and he has a business training and he understands the business of baseball to say on the flagship station of your team, if you think we're not trying PS when they're not trying, you're a liar. No, I don't think that's being taught at Harvard business school. I think that the thing that sticks out to me about the whole Friday night show, and I don't mean the Papal Munch show. I mean, the show before was that they're just finally saying the quiet part out loud, which I think I give them a little bit of credit for because before when it's silence and we can only kind of report what they're telling agents and teams and negotiations, there's some room for interpretation and they can cover. Now there's no cover. You know, the payroll is going to be lower. Yep, they, they, they've said it themselves. And you know what? That is, I give them credit for the accountability part because I have to be fair on that. I asked for accountability and they gave that, you know, they were asked both, you know, Sam and Tom and also Breslow were asked, you know, about telling free agents and, and other teams they need to shed payroll. Nobody denied that that has been the case. I also think there's this perception out there that from the beat, especially among the some diehard fans who, you know, think everything is cheery and find ways to spin it positively, which is honestly a better way to go through life than the other way. So I commend that a little that we look at this or, you know, especially when I report something like the telling teams that they have to shed payroll that I react to that text with, aha, this is awesome. I got them. My reaction to a text like that was, wow, are you serious? They're really acting like this. They're going to do that to this fan base. Like, oh my God, I can't believe they're actually doing this. I think that was the reaction when the stuff first surfaced and now they're, they're copying to it, admitting to it, which again, I give them a little bit of credit for Um, the fact they delivered a message is good. The fact they did it the way they did it, not as good. And the the content of the message is horrible too. Right. It's just, you know, the whole thing, you know, Tom was, I think defensive uh, on Friday night, a little bit more than Sam. Sam obviously got defensive on Saturday with EEI um, and you know, you're turning your fan festival now for the second straight year into an extremely humiliating event. And that can't be what they set out to do when they created this winter weekend event a few years ago at all. Um, touch on a couple other things from Friday. Like I think it's just so interesting that, and part of it was because we had him on the pod and he did three major interviews last week, us Rob Bradford's podcast and with the globe. But Breslow's scrum was, like, not really usable because, number one, everything ownership said in Sam and Tom was, like, more interesting and obviously headline-worthy. And number two, there's just this feeling that this guy's not really pulling the strings. His hands are tied. And so, you know, what is he even going to say? They have made this decision. I I think he probably you know, didn't think that this was going to be the circumstances he was inheriting when he did it. And so, you know, as we reset expectations for Breslow, you know, is he going to revamp the pitching development with all these hires and everything? Possibly. And that would be great because they need that. But in terms of moves, I think no fan now is disillusioned that the buck stops with him or that the buck stopped with Heim or even Dombrowski. And I know things have changed over time, but you know, Breslow, as I said, no reason to boo him the other night. I know he walked out with Sam, but 
He is, by all accounts, very restricted here, and you have to wonder if he knew that when he accepted the job. Yeah, well, as you and I have noted more than once, um, the, the, the behavior of ownership and the budgetary constraints and instructions are a window into what Heimblum dealt with for four years, and everyone that was operating on the, yeah, he's trying to be just like Tampa Bay, well, they've been disabused of that notion. If there was anyone trying to be like Tampa Bay or more like Tampa Bay, it was ownership in putting a lid on the amount of money. And even Bloom had more to work with than Breslow apparently does yep. by a considerable amount. As we sit here, there's a $23 million gap between where they are now and where they were at the end of last year. So it 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 does provide some cover for Breslow. Maybe he wishes he he didn't have that because he would probably prefer more money to operate and get back on track quicker. But you're right. Uh, the the onus is now on him to realize improvement through moves on the margins and internal improvements when it comes to player development, and that shouldn't be dismissed because let's face it. We have said for a long time that this organization through five or six different heads of baseball ops has done a poor job in developing its own homegrown starting pitching. It has caught up with them in a big way here in the last five years. And for the longest time, their way around that was to spend their way out of it. So they got, they, they buy David price, they trade for, and then extend Chris sale and now they've just thrown their hands up and said, nope, not doing that anymore. We're going to wait until we develop our own David Prices and Chris Sales, and who knows how long that's going to take. Separate, very quick point before we move on to the Cora aspect of this. I had a baseball person text me last night. Boy, are they putting a lot of pressure on Marcelo Maya, Roman Anthony, and Kyle Teal. I think that's another takeaway here too. Yeah, and you know, I wrote a little bit about this for my – Sunday column, some things I think I think, uh, where I noted that, you know, the marketing approach here was was uh, focused on two areas. Hey, wasn't it great when we had Pedro Martinez and Jason Veritek and David Ortiz? You remember those guys, right? And even before them, ask your dad about Fred Lynn and Jim Rice and Carlton Fisk. And hey, I know we're not very interesting now, but you just wait until our big three of Kyle Teal and Roman Anthony and Marcelo Meyer make it up, and they're going to be the nucleus. They're going to be the new Bradley, Betts, and Bogarts. They're going to lead us to the promised land. Not a whole lot promoted about the guys that are going to be on the 24 roster, at least the guys that are going to be on the roster at the start of the year, because it's possible any one or all three of those guys could be up by September and part of the core in 25. But it, it's all about selling for now their past and their tomorrow because today doesn't look great. And I think the other piece of that, I think the most out of touch thing that was said was by Tom Warner saying, well, the last time we last time I checked, we had four World Series. By their own doing, they've made five years feel like a very, very long time since 2018. And as someone who understands the history without living through that, 
fans lived through 86 years. I do think the Red Sox, in a way, are a victim of their own success. We're now five years without a title. Feels like a long time when it used to be, uh, you know, 20 times that almost. But, Tom, no one wants to hear about your 2018 title even, or 07, or 04, or 13 anymore. Those were great times. Everybody who's a fan of the team appreciates it. It was great for the reason. Those were the glory days. And a long, sustained time. But nobody wants to hear about that anymore. You know, it's in the past, and... You know, that's when the questions of are they resting on their laurels? Are they less interested because they have those in the pocket? That's when those questions come up and, and they're not coming out of nowhere. Well, two, a couple more things we'll touch on. First one is Alex Cora. He talked Friday night. He says he doesn't want to be selfish and talk about his own contract situation. It's kind of becoming an elephant in the room. Uh, it would be the number one storyline about the Red Sox heading into the season if the ownership thing wasn't such a massive big picture thing. Alex Cora saying he didn't want to be selfish and focus on his contract situation heading into the year. But then I asked him about the Craig Council contract because I knew that would be a back way into kind of the same answer. He talked about how it's great for baseball. It's a great opportunity for the industry. It's great for the managerial profession. I've been on record here and in writing that I think the Dodgers and the Yankees might loom large as possibilities for him with Dave Roberts and or Aaron Boone are let go. If you're Alex Cora and you came in and had everything ready to win a World Series in your first year in 18 and that approach and you look at what ownership's doing, you're probably saying this isn't the same. And, you know, I've liked it here. It's been a good ride, but I wouldn't mind going somewhere where they're trying. And to me, that's not to be dismissed. Yeah, I, I would say if I had to place money on whether Alex Cora manages the Red Sox in 2025, I would say no. And not because he's going to be fired, although I guess that's a possibility if this team stumbles out of the gate. Who knows what ownership thinks about that and whether there's a disconnect between what Breslow's expectations are and ownership and upper managements are. But I would say that that more than anybody else in the game, really, that Alex Cora stands to benefit from the door that Craig Council kicked in mm -hmm. last November. Because, uh, you know, this doesn't happen much where you have an in-demand, respected manager who communicates, who's bilingual, obviously, and has a championship in his back pocket, in his resume, being a free agent and the amount of teams that are going to show interest. And we, we had a half dozen teams going after Craig Council, who, no disrespect to him, thought of very highly around the game. He's never gone to an NLCS, or I guess there was one NLCS with the Dodgers yep. in 2018, but never won a pennant or been to a World Series the way Cora has. I have no question that Cora is poised to capitalize on that kind of free agent status and that he intends to look around why wouldn't he? This is an opportunity that doesn't come along much in that profession. These aren't players we're talking about getting 20 and 30 and $40 million a year. These are managers who are mostly paid a million, a million and a half, two, two and a half million. Council changed the equation. Core is positioned to take advantage of it fully. What do you what what is Core's salary right now? Or what is it believed to be in the range of two point seven five approximately? He stands to make four times that on the open market. I don't know about four times, but I would say three. If 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 I mean, Council's that, getting, that if gets, Council's that getting eight, he could get ten. Well, yeah, I I mean, 
I, I would say he could certainly match Council. If your math is is working there, you're talking about $11 million for Cora. I don't know anybody going that high, but certainly he can match Council. I think he gets 10. I do. Maybe. And, and he'll be happy what? to hear you say that. He'll be thrilled. Yeah, he's an avid Fenway rundown listener. I, I think, as I've said this before, kind of two ways to map out Alex Cora's departure. Bad year. Craig Breslow wants his own guy. Good year. He's a hot free agent, right? So, like, what's the where's yeah, the he middle can't ground? Lose. In in that sense, he can't lose. If they have another last place finish, people will excuse it because of the reduced spending, uh, the 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 refusal to upgrade this winner with significant additions, and his reputation will be intact. If he wins or even has a winning record, people will say, "See," and and I, and I actually think he could use that because. Uh, you know, as we look at this, he's only had one other winning season in his four years here, right? Mm-hmm. 2018, obviously 108 wins world series, 2019, 84, 85 wins out of the playoffs gone for 20 and then good in 21, uh, 21, 22, 23, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry. He's had three winning seasons. He He yeah. did have the the deep playoff run in 21, but he's coming off two last place finishes. And I think somebody, particularly if it's a team that's in the middle of a rebuild or uh, aiming toward getting to a contender, you want to see that a guy can win with not a lot. And a winning record with this roster would convince people he's capable of doing that too. Yep. And so, you know, I think that there's possibilities there that will start, my uh the storyline that i think has gotten the most play for the least reason in red sox history the jason veritek managerial uh character arc which we'll have plenty of time to discuss if cora does move on red sox stats again a shout out to to that wonderful account on on x and his newsletter yesterday mentioned that andrew bailey could be a potential managerial candidate. I think David Ross would be another, but we have plenty of time for that. Last couple things I want to touch on with you. You were there for player availabilities on Saturday. I was not because the great North Carolina Tar Heels were in town. Uh, nothing. You can't beat that. Just Thanks any, for your commitment. Yep. And I did Friday night. Any takeaways or thoughts from the gauntlet of players that you and Chris Smith got to talk to on Saturday? Yeah, less about, uh, you know, I'll echo what everyone says that Garrett Whitlock looks like a new person. He's definitely Mm -hmm. built up um, in his upper body. You can see uh, the amount of muscle and weight he's put on uh, as a means of countering some of the injury issues he's dealt with the last couple of years. So we'll see if that has its intended effect. Um, There was a lot of, you know, can't wait for spring training. Uh, it, it was the equivalent of best shape of my career, you know, after player, after player, after player. That's to be expected in January when players are looking ahead to the start of spring training. I did think that the one thing that kind of caught my ear was Andrew Bailey essentially saying, yeah, we, you know, it's great if we can add somebody, but I'm happy with the guys we have lined up for our rotation now. Now, maybe that is taking a page out of the, uh, don't worry, be happy marketing uh, handbook be being handed out that, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're going to spin gold out of what little they have in terms of personnel. Maybe it's confidence on Bailey's part saying, 
I can make Hauk and Winkowski and Whitlock and Pavetta consistent winners. I can take what they've done in dribs and drabs and have them do it across six months. And maybe he can, but that I, I that almost signaled the yeah, we're we're not trying real hard even to go out and get a back end depth starter. If this is who we have, I'm fine with it. I don't think you'd be saying that if Craig Breslow is is whistling in your ear that you're close with Mike Clevenger or you're about to get, um, you know, any one of those guys back. It seems like they're okay with what they have, which, uh, as the popular meme would suggest, that's a bold strategy. Let's see if it pays off. Before we go, Sean, I do want to give you a chance uh, to honor Someone very important to your career and your life who we lost recently, and uh, Joe Galati, who longtime Herald writer who passed away about 10 days ago, and I know that meant a lot. Yeah, just a, a terrific uh, role model and mentor for me when I got on the beat in 1989. Joe had already been there for some time. He could not have been more welcoming to somebody who was in theory a competitor, although I wasn't much of a competitor at the beginning. I was just learning but he uh, introduced me to people he knew. He gave me advice about how to do the job, how to work the clubhouse, how to get to know people, how to find news, how to make contacts, how to collect sources, down to what hotels were worth staying in and what cities and what restaurants I should go to and what ones I shouldn't, uh, how to handle traveling. He... Uh, you know, I will forever be grateful for Joe Gilliotti, who was uh, somebody that passed away uh, about a week ago. Um, I was able to uh, go to his memorial service and speak to his widow and three sons, all of whom I knew. Uh, there was an outpouring from the Boston sports media of people uh, arriving to pay their respects as we were arriving with uh, Ron Borges and Karen Garigian, Bob Ryan was leaving. So if you worked in Boston sports media for the last 40 years, you know, you knew Joe Gilliotti and, um, uh, you know, we were sad with his passing, but uh, shared many stories that we all remembered of him. And we all acknowledged the impact he had on our careers and lives. And I, I will also add the sports writing, uh, Family in this town is a tight one. Uh, I don't know Doug Kide personally well. I don't know if you do either, but just want to uh, pass along. We're thinking of the Kide family at this time with the passing of their daughter, Hallie. I know we've all followed that. Um, and thinking of, of Doug and, and the family too. Just and an unimaginable tragedy uh, to, to lose a, a vivacious uh, fighting spirit like that at two to cancer seems needlessly cruel i can't imagine what doug and his wife are going through um those of us who have children and have had illnesses and things like that uh they are in retrospect relatively minor to whatever the kides are experiencing and our thoughts and prayers are are with them through a, what just must be a, as i said an unimaginably terrible time and our thoughts are with them that's the Fenway Rundown for today.